So uh, we've been in a little series called Abiding in Jesus during Advent, uh, where we've been looking out at the various ways that, that God calls us to abide throughout Scripture. Um, we've looked at what it, what it means to abide in truth, what it means to abide in light, abide in prayer, and abide in the Spirit. Um, and this week we're going to look at simply what it means to abide in Jesus together. Uh, so um, I'm kind of thinking about this throughout the week, this idea of abiding in Jesus together. And uh, I, I like to work downtown once a week to kind of get out of this bubble and remind myself, like we, we live in this world-class city and um, it's a really good time. Like if you ever want to join me, side note, Thursdays, Fridays, I usually do that. Start at the library, go across the street afterwards for this really good chicken place, Chick-fil-A, if you've ever heard of it, for lunch. Um, after that, I usually bop over to one of the churches in Copley Square and spend some time in prayer and then go finish the day off at a, a coffee shop. Um, on the common. Um, but anyway, so I'm at the library working on Thursday morning. I'm on the newer side, um, the big windows kind of overlooking Boylston Street, right kind of equal with the Boston Marathon uh, finish line, if, if that helps you at all. And I'm kind of thinking about this idea of being together, right, of, of being in community, of abiding together. And um, with this in mind, I'm just kind of watching everyone that's walking by this window. And I start to kind of tally, not just like how many people are walking by, but uh, who's alone and who's with other people. And so I, I, keep, I keep note, right? I put a tally on the left side of my notepad if someone walks by alone, and on the right side if someone walks by with other people. And so I do this for 10 minutes. Um, and at the end of it, there's 44 tallies on the left and four tallies on the right. 44 people that walked by alone and four people that walked by in groups. It was two pairs of two. And one of those groupings was, was a mom and her child. And I, I know, like... Someone that's super into stats, like that's a terrible way to gather statistics. I'm, I'm well aware, right? The time of day, like of course it lends itself to more people being alone. I'm, I'm well aware, but it got me thinking about how lonely people are, like in general, right? And so I went and searched, and it turns out that Boston was actually ranked the eighth loneliest city in America pretty recently, right? And, and most people know this. If you've, if you've been here for some time, like I think maybe you kind of can grasp onto this idea that, that the city like is a lonely place, there's a novel that Olivia Lang wrote called The Lonely City, and she kind of has this idea that like, you can be lonely anywhere, but there's a unique flavor to being lonely in the city. Because right? you're surrounded by millions of people, but this proximity, this physical proximity, doesn't breed or move past this sense of internal isolation. And so as I'm thinking about this on Thursday, I kind of wrongly assumed, like, maybe it's, maybe it's better in the church, right? In a quick search, like, that's not the case. It's like, like marginally better. Like I wouldn't even say it's better. And so I just kind of came to the conclusion, like the reality is that America, the city, the church, really has kind of a loneliness problem. And all these studies, all these stats, a lot of them were before COVID. Right? So COVID happens, times that by two, maybe three. Right? It seems we almost have like an inability to be in community right now. Or we have an inability just to be with other people. We have an inability to be together, be united, be one. The thing is, not so surprisingly, Scripture has a lot to say about this. Like, maybe, maybe this is news to you, maybe it's not, but God doesn't want you to be alone. God doesn't want you to be lonely, to feel isolated, not just in the sense of like, yes, God is everywhere at all times, and he is always with you, and he is always your friend. Yes, amen, that is true. But he wants you to live life with other people to live out your faith with a group of people that are very close to you. And so I think this might be the answer, at least part of the answer, to this loneliness problem. 
right? What God through his son, Jesus, offers us. Yes, it's ultimately salvation. Yes, it's ultimately redemption and forgiveness of sins. But it's also a community where unity and oneness are possible through his son. And so today, as we talk about that, abiding in Jesus together, just consider this solution that God offers us. So we're going to be in John 17. You can turn there if you want. It's just one verse. It'll be up on the screen too. Um, in this Advent season, if you're newer, um, we've been looking at a few passages in the Gospel of John and some of John's letters. Um, and our passage finds itself at the very end of what scholars, theologians call the upper room discourse. Um, that's, that's John 14 through 17. And essentially, it's just this um, whole narrative and teachings of Jesus where it's Jesus and the disciples, maybe 12, 15 hours before his crucifixion. And so you can really view this as kind of like Jesus' last words to those he's closest with before he dies. And then our chapter, John 17, um, is actually Jesus, God the Son, praying to God the Father. Right? It's, it's called the high priestly prayer. Maybe in your Bible you have like a little heading um, that kind of names the section. It's probably called the high priestly prayer. And so John 17, verse 21, right before this, Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he's praying in particular for people who would come to know him later on through the words of the disciples. In other words, you and me. So as I read this one verse, just hear this as Christ's deep prayer and pleading to the Father for you, for me. I'll read this, and then at the end I'll say this is the word of the Lord. John 17, verse 21. He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the word of the Lord. So I find it interesting that the whole, the whole prayer, if you read it, the whole content of Jesus' last recorded prayer in the Gospel of John before he's crucified is just him asking God to keep us together. That's interesting, right? Of all the things he could pray for, of all the things that were on his mind, of all the pain he was about to endure, and, and sure, he probably prayed more than what was just written down, but like, this is what John decided to write down. Right, to keep us unified, to keep us together, to keep us as one. And so when we look at this verse and we consider what um, Jesus is asking the Father and what it means for us and really the overall kind of theme of this Advent series so far, our main point today is just simply this. We are called to abide in Jesus together. I'm going to say that again. I want us to all say the together part together. We are called to abide in Jesus together. So we'll look at this in, in, in three ways, three things we see in this verse as we consider this. First, we're called to abide in Jesus together. We see God's desire for us to abide together, his desire. Second, we see his way, the way in which God desires us to abide together. And third, um, God's witness. In other words, the way we abide together and what it looks like points to, is kind of a witness of, to the gospel. God's desire, God's way, God's witness. So first, God's desire. Look at the first part of the verse again. Jesus is praying for us, and his desire is, quite simply, that we would all be one. Remember the setting of this, right? He's 12 hours before his crucifixion, right? He's praying to God the Father, this beautiful prayer, that we would be together, that we would be unified, and we would be one. And I think it's one thing to kind of read the scriptures and see, like, God commands us to do certain things, and then it's another to read this prayer and be like, God desires us to do certain things. Like, all the commands of God come from a deep desire for you and what's best for you and what's best for the Lord, of course, but there's just something different about reading 
God in human form praying for us. Like that hits a little different, right? Like it's one thing to say, you must do this because I'm holy, which is good, and we ought to obey that, and that's for our own good. It's another thing when God the Son, before he dies, he looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, I deeply desire this for you. Like, I love you, and I, I want this for you. This isn't an idea that's just new to our passage. Right? It's really all over the Bible. Right? You can kind of go all the way back before creation. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, living as one living in a unified, together way. Then turn to the second page of the Bible, and we've been in Genesis. Uh, We took a four-week break. We've been in Genesis. If you remember Genesis 2, God creates Adam, and he says what? He looks at me and says, it's not good that man should be alone. So from the beginning, it was never God's intention that people should be alone, lonely, walking life without other people. This continues all throughout the Bible. Right, maybe the clearest first kind of idea or picture of this is, is found in Exodus, where you look at the Israelites and they're kind of wandering in the wilderness. That's a group of people centered on a faith, on a common faith. Right? They did everything together. Right? They obeyed God together. They disobeyed God together. Right? They received the Ten Commandments together as a group. The Ten Commandments were given to a group of people. Right? And it's interesting we kind of think about the Ten Commandments as like strictly that's the way we obey God. And while it's true that is the way we obey God, like six of the ten of them involve people around you. Six of the ten of them involve your community. And so really the laws are given in part to a group of people to be together, to be united. And so this is all over the Old Testament and New Testament. God's desire for us to be in community. God's desire for us to be one. God's desire for us to be together. And it's interesting, it's super clear that God wants this for us. But quite frankly, if I'm honest, we often don't want it. Right? And why is that? Like God presents this idea of being together as a really good thing that he's ordered and designed us to do. Why why do we struggle with this? Why, Why do you struggle with this? Maybe you have an answer that pops into your head. The, the list is infinite, but just a few potential options, right? Time, maybe it's time. So we are just so dang busy that we don't think we have time to jump into whether it's a formal community group or just like an intentional relationship with someone at church or something of that nature. We don't think we have time for that. I saw an article online recently that talked about um, just the sloth of new people that like tons of new people would come into a church and then leave. They wouldn't stay. And it asked them all why, right? It was another study, another, another statistic. And um, one of like the five or nine, I can't remember how many um, answers there were, but one of them was that they were too busy. Like Christians were too busy for me. And they kind of said like, they'd be hospitable. They were extremely welcoming. They were extremely nice, but they wouldn't be my friend. They weren't willing to be my friend. We shouldn't be so busy that we don't have time for other people in our lives. But, but Tyler, I'm in grad school and like I, you know, all these papers, all these things, like I get it. I really do. But if I'm honest, getting the best possible grades at the expense of being in a community of faith with other people, that's not a good exchange. And the reality is abiding in Jesus together during the hard times, like grad school or anything else you have going on, actually enables you to abide in Jesus together during the easy times, right? Like, I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone say, 
whether it's grad school, a job, or parenting, or something going on, it's like right when this semester ends, I'm going to jump in. Right when my kid grows out of two naps and grows into one nap, I'll be around a lot more. Right? And, and thankfully, I've seen that come true a lot of times, but more often than not, what happens when that milestone's hit? They don't jump in. Right? Because they didn't abide in Jesus together during the hard time. So why would they need to do that during the easy time? Maybe it's not time for you. Maybe it's a little more like cultural. Right? Like maybe you come from a really individualistic culture. Right? And there are good things about an individualistic culture and there are bad things about an individualistic culture. This kind of society, like in America, where I think the majority culture is individualistic, it gets really easy for people to live lives for themselves. Right? Like do what's best for you is a very common refrain in our day and age. And here's the thing. Like, can you, can you just imagine Jesus ever saying anything like that? Like, imagine the disciples and Jesus, they're sitting around a fire at night. It's, you know, their weekly community group. And uh, they're just talking about life and stuff. And Jesus, he kind of chirps in with his words of wisdom that are going to later be written and read in the Bible. And he says, guys, sometimes, no matter what you think God is saying, sometimes, no matter what God's people are telling you, you do you. Can you, like, can you imagine that? No, it's, it's the opposite. We have the words that he says in this kind of scenario. You know what he says in, in Luke? He says, if you want to be my follower, you must what? Deny yourself. If you want to abide in Jesus together, you must deny yourself. Of course, for many, it's not time. It's not cultural. It's that you've been hurt. Right? You've been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by Christians. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've been hurt by God. And I guess first, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm deeply, deeply sorry. The church far too long has used the Bible as a weapon to wield as, as power or authority over people. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. Please know, like, that's not an accurate reflection of our God. That's not an accurate reflection of how Jesus treated people. But also know this, the church hurts, but Jesus heals. And so often Jesus heals in community. We are both hurt and healed in community. I think sometimes it's not always this way, but often more than not, we are healed in the same community that we're hurt in. And I actually think that's a really perfect picture of the Christian life, of a group of people living together, doing life together, constantly loving each other fiercely, but hurting each other on their way up to looking more and more like Jesus. A good example of this is actually found just a few chapters later in John, where Peter, he pulls out his sword as, as a soldier is trying to arrest Jesus and he cuts his ear off. And what does Jesus do? He heals the man whose ear was cut off. And it's not a one-to-one, but the, the principle is there. The church hurts. Jesus heals. So that's our first point. God desires us to abide together. Abide in Jesus together. Our second point, God gives us a way of abiding in Jesus together, a kind of a mode or a model, if you will. Look at the second, kind of, second portion of the verse. That they may all be one, keen on this part, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So Jesus here, he's praying that we'd be unified, we'd be in community, we'd be together, we'd be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. 
That seems kind of insurmountable, right? Like beyond our abilities. And side note, if this conversation about like God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, like a little confusing, like we have a, we have a seminar coming up on this. I know Victoria talked about it. Just my little plug too. Someone cool is leading it. I don't know who it is, but you can sign up online for that. Um, no, but seriously, it's, it's a massive concept and there are huge implications for it just in this verse alone. Um, but Christ is praying in such a way that we would be one, that it reflects that of he and the Father, that it's the same way that he and the Father are one. While I was reading about this, D.A. Carson, a good quote from him popped up. He's, he's commenting on this verse. He's a theologian. He's a pastor. He says, the Father and Son are distinguishable. In other words, they are still separate people, yet they are one. Right? Similarly, the believers, still distinct, are to be one in purpose, in love, in action undertaken with and for one another, in joint submission to the revelation received. In other words, in joint submission to the gospel. Christ the Father, we're one in purpose, we're one in love, and we're one in action undertaken with and for each other, right? The Spirit alongside them. So we too, in order to abide in Jesus together, we are to be one in purpose, love, and action taken with and for each other. And right, so yes, this, this is a call to be and do those things, but like getting back down to kind of what we're talking about, you can't do those things without being in community. You can't do those things without being together. And like to, to paint a picture of what that kind of means, like we do this in various ways throughout COA, right? Community groups is one big way we do that. But here's the thing. Here's the, here's the honest truth. Like if it's just Sunday mornings today and it's just community group on Thursdays and this is all you kind of do, that's not enough. God intends for more for you. And it, no, it's, it's not just time, right? It's not just more time with people. It's, it's intimacy. And I think intimacy takes time. It's a depth. And I think depth takes time. Right? If, 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 if Sunday morning and community group, two things a week, is the only thing you do, and sometimes you miss one of those, I, I get it. The only thing you do, you won't have intimate, spiritually transformative relationships for a long time, if ever. Dr. Dr. Joseph Hellerman, he wrote a book called um, When the Church Was a Family, and one of kind of the big parts of his thesis was that spiritual formation happens almost entirely in the context of community. In other words, paint a picture of this. Maybe this is you. They've been coming here for years. Right? The first few months, you grew a lot. You grew in your understanding for God's word. Right? Maybe you even walked the the path of sanctification a little bit, and and you stopped sinning in certain ways, and, and you felt closer to God but you hit a ceiling, right? You kind of plateaued. Anyone here ever feel like that? Raise my hand. Yeah. Is it maybe because, it's not, this is not the case for everyone, but is it maybe because you didn't grow or experience intimate relationships, personal relationships? As great as our community groups are, and I think they're really great, like we just applauded our leaders, it's hard to achieve intimacy when you meet with a group of 10 people just once a week. That doesn't happen. And remember, too, that we're supposed to be one in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one, right? Can you imagine Jesus and the Father having a once a week check in? Like, hey, what's up, Dad? Like, let me tell you about my week. Son, you got 30 minutes. Like, can you imagine that? No. I'm convinced this can't happen unless we get tangled up in the mess and the glory of each other's lives. This is what God wants for us. 
And again, again, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not just saying you need to spend more time at church. I'm, 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 I'm encouraging a depth and intimacy that we need to cultivate, that we need to grow in, that we need to plant our roots in. And so maybe this is kind of you and where you're at and like you haven't like experienced that intimacy, right? Well, what does that even look like? How do you kind of begin that process? Maybe it's something as simple as you go up to someone in your group and you say, hey, you know, can, can we grab a cup of coffee, a lunch? Like, I want to know a little bit more about you. And, and honestly, I just need someone to kind of listen to, like, some things I've been going through. Or maybe, like, that's too high of a bar. So maybe, maybe you just go up to one or two people in your group and you're like, hey, I, it's really hard for me to say. I, but I've just been, I've had a lot of anxiety at work. It's clouding my thoughts. I, my mind goes dark places. It impacts my work. It impacts my ability to relate with the people at my work. Can you, can you pray for me? Like, pray for me and then ask me how I'm doing three days from now. Ask me if it's any better. Right, and if you're here and you, and you don't have that person or that group, like, come talk to me. Come talk to any of the leaders that stood up you saw just now. They'll be glad to point you in the right direction, right? The reality is God intends for us to abide in Jesus together with a depth and an intimacy that reflect that of God the Father and God the Son. So God's way, so God's design, that was God's way, and lastly, God's witness. Look at the end of our verse with me that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, key in on this part, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, our unity, our oneness, our community, our togetherness, the way we do life together, when it's done rightly, is meant to be a flashing light to the world, a beacon of hope that the Father really did, did send Jesus, that Christ is really the one that the world needs, the world was anticipating, that Christ really is the one who heals and saves your soul. So what that means is that we ought to live together in such a way that without a doubt, people look at us and they see something so unique, something so unworldly, something so inexplicable that the only plausible explanation is that this Jesus guy really is who he says he is. And just so we're clear, this time of year especially, who does he say he is? Emmanuel. God with us. We should have uncommon hospitality and an uncommon kindness that the only way it's possible is God with us. Right? We as a church ought to be uh, so kind and so uh, welcoming in such a way that they see the way we do life together and they say, that's really weird, but I've never seen anything like it. The only way this is possible is God with us. The world, the scripture says the world may believe that Jesus is the Christ by the way that his followers treat and live and do life with each other. But that also means the consequences of, of not doing this are quite catastrophic. Could it be? Could it be that like my beef or inability to get along with a certain person in my community group is the very thing withholding someone else from experiencing the love of God? That's what this text is strongly implying. The great theologian Francis Schaeffer, um, he notes that, that people all over the world will not listen if we have the right doctrine, the right polity, 
that are not exhibiting community. People all over the world will not listen, even if we truly believe what we have is true, and we do. We believe the scripture is the true word of God. They will not listen if our church is fantastically organized and we know exactly what we're doing and we come in here and this is a fantastic moment and so many things going on that look amazing and feel amazing, but we don't exhibit community. We don't exhibit togetherness. We don't exhibit unity and oneness. They won't believe. So as we close, think from this week forward, right? really the next couple of months, it's really hard to do this. If you didn't know, maybe you're new to the city. January is not a fantastic time. February, also not a fantastic month. <laughs> like March, I don't know, maybe you get one or two days. That are de- but it's cold, right? It's snowy. Like this is not the easiest of time, easiest of times to like be in community, to live this out, to be together. So just a few practical ways for us to abide in Jesus together. Really, this is more tailored towards the next two weeks as we all kind of go on break or some of us leave town. So um, I'm going to ask everyone to do something again. If you're staying in town for Christmas, can you please stand up? I know, I know. All right, take a look around. Plenty of people in this room that are staying in town for Christmas. You can sit down now. Like, yes, be with your biological family. But realize we're celebrating the arrival of a savior who purchased a far deeper spiritual family. Figure else who out is who else is around and spend time with them. If you aren't staying in town for Christmas, figure out how to stay connected with your spiritual community over the holiday. And so really this is a charge to community group leaders and, and community groups, right? But, but figure out how to stay connected. Don't let three weeks go by and not say anything to anyone. It doesn't have to be intense. It doesn't have to be a Zoom call, like where you hop on for two hours and just, how you doing? Like, hi, low, come on, let's go. It can be something as simple as like, it can be something as simple as, hey, I encourage you guys, let's, let's pray one or two minutes every other day. Pray for one person in the group and then text them. Hey, I've been praying for you. Any specific way? Like, that's a low bar. That's a really low bar. One or two minutes every other day, we can do that. So figure out how to stay connected with your spiritual community over break. Don't just go dark. I get it. You want to rest. You want to relax. But don't just go dark. The last practical way we can abide in Jesus together in such a way that it's a witness to the world is to invite people into this community that we have. And I mean more than like just invite them to, the, to your community group. Invite them into the intimacy you're experiencing there or the intimacy that you are hoping to grow into. Right? No community is perfect. We're not going to achieve this, this ideal intimacy or this ideal depth, hardly ever, if never, until heaven. Right? But invite them into what you're trying to achieve. Right? Speaking of this idea of intimacy, next semester we're going to have CGs go through spiritual disciplines together. Things are going to get real intimate, real deep, pretty quickly. It's the perfect time to jump into that. I think there's a a unique power to inviting people into community. And maybe it looks a little bit like, you know, we're about to have this church-wide meal. And and just picture this, all right? Picture this. We're about to have a meal for church, if you didn't know. Um, You go downstairs, you get your plate of food. To your left, there's a table that's full. There's one open spot. Everyone in your CG, everyone you know. One open spot. To your right, there's a table with four people you've never met. 
the decision is yours. Right? What will God have you do? What will God have you do? I'm not going to be watching you, but God will. Invite people into the community, the intimacy that you have. And, and, and also, as a side note, some of you feel like you're really lacking this or like this hasn't been offered to you. Sometimes really what you need to do is be community to someone else. And that's the way you actually then start to feel connected as well. So at this point, I'm going to invite Christina on stage. Christina, um, she's getting baptized today, um, which is super exciting. We're excited to celebrate this with her. And she's, yeah. She's going to share um, her story in just a minute. And what I love, as we talked about this last point of inviting people in, is that someone chose to invite her in. And because of that, she met the Lord. And so baptism um, is, is really, it's this idea of just this public expression of an internal change, right? We don't believe that baptism is what saves you, but we do believe that Jesus commands us to be baptized. And so this is Christina's way of saying, hey, I am going to follow Jesus. So Christina. Hi, everyone. Um, this is a little bit closer than I'm normally used to, <laughs> but scared. Um, anyways, uh, so my name is Christina. I've been attending COA for around two years, um, and today I have the amazing privilege of telling you the story of how I surrendered my life to Christ. I am fully aware of the immense privilege I grew up with. As a child, I never once had to worry about my next meal. My parents never pressured me into certain career paths, and though divorced, my parents did their very best to ensure that my brother and I knew that they worked as a team. On the surface, I had everything, and I didn't need anything else. Yet, a few significant experiences I had as a child and the culture I was exposed to shaped how I understood love. I believe that all love had to be earned, um, and to be loved meant that I was not to be a burden. Because I had everything, I was not to be upset, and feeling like I needed something more meant that I was weak and ungrateful. I felt the need to please the people around me and did anything um, to be accepted. I tried my best to get perfect grades and gave in to peer pressure to prevent upsetting friends and classmates. Relationships felt transactional and love felt temporary. Though there were people surrounding me, I felt completely alone. Though I tried my best not to burden others, I felt like the biggest burden. And there's a lyric that I heard recently that I really resonate with even today, and it goes, just because I carry it well doesn't mean it isn't heavy and I don't need some help. So my people-pleasing personality followed me to college, and when I moved to Boston, I struggled to find belonging in the unfamiliar setting and culture. As everything around me seemed to change, I grasped onto the one tangible thing that gave me a sense of control, numbers. Whether it was my GPA or my weight, I worried about the smallest fluctuations and slowly I let numbers begin to control me. Little did I know, God was already at work in me. And defeated, I reached out to a friend in college who invited me to go to her church. It was the worship that drew me back every single week. And I heard the gospel for the first time in spring of 2014 and was introduced to the concept of unconditional and unearned love. Intrigued by this unfamiliar notion, I immediately wanted to know what it took to excel in my newfound interest. And spoiler alert, this didn't work, but I now know that God used my heightened interest to allow me to learn about who he is. I surrendered my life to Christ in the beginning of 2015, and that night the head knowledge that I had been immersing myself in clicked into place in my heart. The words that I had been hearing and reading came to life. 
I finally understood that my salvation was not through works, but through a personal, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I had been adopted into his family, and because of Christ on the cross, I was no longer a slave, but a daughter. And if a daughter, then an heir through God. Nothing that I can do will change my adoption or my belonging. God's love cannot be earned. His unconditional, constant love is so much greater than anything I could receive from the people I tried so hard to please. And that night, God took my anxieties, sense of control, and burdens and gave me a heart of flesh in return. For the first time, I had hope in something greater than myself and the people around me. And that is where my testimony could end. Um, and he had brought me out of darkness into light. And don't get me wrong, knowing Jesus has been the ultimate and an overwhelming joy in my life. And as, and as I reflect on all that God has done in my life over the years, I feel extremely thankful and undeserving of his love. But there have also been seasons where I have dealt with the same things that I had thought I'd worked out with God many years ago. For example, I'm in grad school now, so the GPA thing is real. Um, and there have been times where I feel like I have lost the wide-eyed wonder um, I, was, I once possessed. There is a difference though between then and now. I have an armor of truth. Though my circumstances may change, our God does not. I will continue to battle flesh and sin and struggle with thoughts of inadequacy, but I know that sin and death no longer have dominion over me because I am under grace. Testimonies are not just about what God has done, but what God is doing and will continue to do. I will continue to serve the Lord even in my weaknesses and imperfections. And even when the world tells me otherwise, I know I have found belonging and unconditional love in the one who matters most. And I know that I cannot do this in my own strength. It is because of Christ in me that I can continue to live by faith in the Son of God. His steadfast love and faithfulness will continue to preserve me. I surrender today fully knowing that I must surrender again tomorrow. I want to be baptized today because Jesus commanded it. I want to publicly declare that Jesus is the leader of my life and I want to follow in his example. I am in no way perfect. I continue to make mistakes, but because of God's unending and beautiful grace, I am loved and I am redeemed. His truth, his light, and his precious gift of his son on the cross has set me free. So in Psalm 40, the psalmist reflects and gives thanks for the past mercies and requests for God's help in a new situation. It ends with verses 16 and 17. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. I have my previous experiences to assure me of God's unfailing, fierce, and unconditional love. And I have found the greatest belonging of all, as a daughter of the eternal King. I hold fast to the truth and his promises, knowing that I've found the greatest joy of them all. Thank you.